The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Lord, we continue to acknowledge how great you are. You are our great God. And you have come to us and you have called us to yourself and you have given us Christ. And in him we have all that we need. And we are thankful for the work that he has done on our behalf. The cross, his resurrection, ascended now at your right hand, ruling and reigning. And we are grateful that he was the victor and that we are able to stand with him. Lord, I pray as we look at this passage this morning that your spirit will open its words to our hearts and minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's impossible to study history, the history of our country or the history of the world without learning about war. There have been many wars, countless wars throughout the history of the world and even more battles within those wars, right? So you have wars raging all the time, just battle after battle happening within each one. When we even consider our own American history, we think back to the 1700s, relatively short history, and we have the war for independence. And then not too long after that, we had the Civil War. Not too long after that, we had World War I, World War II, involved in Korea, involved in Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Persian Gulf, all of those. But within all of those wars that even our own country has been involved with, there have been many more battles. The same really is with the kingdom of God. That the war has been continuing to rage for the last couple of thousands of years throughout all of these centuries since Christ was here and established his kingdom on earth. The kingdom has expanded, right? It, it has grown throughout this great war, but there have been many, many battles within this war, one of which we're going to see this morning. We're going to see a mission encompassed by this kingdom, by this great war. Up until this point within the book of Matthew, Jesus has really been a, a, assaulting the kingdom of Satan single-handedly. He has been going after it on his own. Christ has been preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've even seen in John the Baptist, he was preaching the kingdom of heaven at hand. He's healing many people of diseases, healing of ailments, raising a little girl from the dead, healing the blind, casting out demons, doing so many things that we have never seen really happen. He's just single-handedly going at it and healing and casting out demons and doing so many things that nobody else could do but the one, the Messiah King. Again, in a very real way, Jesus is dealing these hard blows to Satan. People are beginning to express faith in Christ. We saw that particularly in in chapter 9 where they would come to Jesus and he would ask them uh, about being healed. And he would say, by your faith you have been healed. They're expressing their faith in him. They're beginning to trust in Jesus with the woman who had the issue of blood and then the blindness. and, And on and on we have seen Jesus do incredible miracles. But in this morning's passage, Jesus is going to authorize some reinforcements for the battle. He's going to authorize his disciples to continue in the work that he has begun. You remember, we saw in last week at the end of chapter 9, the compassionate call of Jesus. Remember, he looked out at these crowds of people that he says were harassed and helpless. They were without comfort. They were without guidance. And so he's Looking out at them, he's moved to compassion over the fact that they have nothing. And so he sees them as a field 
that needed to be harvested, right? He says that the harvest is truly plentiful. This is good news. The fields are, are ready. They're, they're ripe for the harvest. But there was a problem that he also stated. And that problem was that the laborers were few. So although the fields were ready, some of you have done farming, of course, and it's like looking at your field and it's ready to be harvested, but there's nobody to do the work. Jesus looks out. The fields are ready to be harvested, but there were few laborers. So what he does is he directs us to pray. He says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more laborers into the harvest field. To pray that more and more soldiers would be sent out onto the battlefield for the sake of the advance of the kingdom. The, the more fields that are harvested, the greater the kingdom will advance. And so as we begin in chapter 10 this morning, we're going to see Jesus go ahead and begin answering that prayer. He's going to begin sending out laborers into the fields, into the harvest field. So as the Lord of the harvest, he himself is the Christ, the Lord of the harvest, he is going to authorize and send disciples into the much-needed harvest field. But what we need to be clear about, even from the outset of this passage, is that this is a specific mission. This is like a a special uh, SEAL team going out on their own particular mission, their own specific task that they're going for. This is a specific battle that the disciples are being sent into. Jesus is going to give these disciples a specific mission with specific instructions. This has been known as uh, the limited commission. Because the disciples are not being sent into the world at this point. This is not the Great Commission where they're to go to all of the nations. Instead, they're being sent on a limited commission or a limited mission strictly to the people of Israel. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to be looking at three main points. First, in verse 1, we'll see the authorization of the mission. In verses 2 to 4, we'll see the disciples of the mission. And then in verses 5 to 15, the logistics or the instructions of the mission. But look, look again at the authorization for the mission that Jesus gives his disciples found in verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them the authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So Jesus calls his disciples together to himself And he gives them authority. I had the opportunity to grow up as the only boy in my family. So I had a younger sister and an older sister. There were three of us. And that was good for me, but bad for them. So I was able to be the quintessential younger brother to my older sister, the annoying little pest. But then I had the opportunity to be the older brother to my little sister and to be the bossy brother. And just like any siblings, like you probably have experienced as well, we were constantly at each, other's, at each other's throats. Who knows how many times that you may have said, or I have said to my sisters, you are not the boss of me. We've all done it. You are not the boss of me. We've all said those words to other people because they're actually not. My younger sister, my older sister, they weren't the boss of me, and I let them know that quite proudly. Yet there were times when my mom would say to me, Brandon, go tell your sister to clean her room. And in that second, I go from the usual annoying little brother to being the usual little brother with a little bit of authority, with, with somebody backing me. So I would go to them and set, give them that message. I became a sent one. And so as a result of that, as a result of being sent by my mom, tell your sister to go clean her room. That means to disobey what I say is to disobey mom. And these disciples were being authorized by Christ for the ministry. 
They were being sent to their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters with his authority. So to disobey them was to disobey the one who was backing them. To disobey the disciples was to disobey the one who had sent them. And the same is true today for us in the great commission that you and I have the opportunity to be a part of. God alone has the power to dispense authority on to us as his servants to go on mission. So as we preach, as we tell people about Christ, we don't go to them on our own authority. We don't go to other countries that are closed off to the gospel on our own authority or on the authority of our nation or anything else. We go to other nations with the gospel, with the authority of God. And the same is true for these here this morning. But in the Great Commission found at the end of the book of Matthew, and looking forward to, maybe you're looking forward again to the end of the book of Matthew too. I don't know, we've been in about a year so far. But once we get to the end of the book of Matthew, we're going to see this Great Commission where Jesus says, go and, and, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples of all nations. So we go on behalf of the authority of Christ behind us. And so like us, as we go on this Great Commission, we go on the authority of Christ. And the same is going to be true for these disciples here this, this morning within Matthew chapter 10. They are going to go on a mission to the Jewish people with his authority. And this means everything when it comes to mission. You can attach what he says at the end of chapter 9 uh, to this as well. Where he says that he, as being the Lord of the harvest, he is the one who has authority over the harvest. He has authority over those who go and labor in it. And it is by his own authority and lordship alone that we see the harvest actually happen. But look again in verse 1 at what he gave them authority over. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So, Jesus is now authorizing his disciples to do the works, really, that we've seen him do. It's been incredible to see Jesus do all of these different miracles, whether it was healing somebody, whether it was calming the seas, whether it was raising the little girl back from the dead. We've seen him do so many interesting and and, and incredible things that are displaying his authority and power, but now he is giving this to his disciples. So the authority of the mission belongs to Jesus and he is now authorizing his disciples for this mission that he's sending them on to their fellow Jews. They wouldn't have gotten anywhere without it. Their message would have been weak. They wouldn't have been able to do the miracles that he had called them to do. They needed the authority of Christ for this mission in order for their objective to be complete. But who were these men? Think of the 12 disciples and probably have different ideas about who they were. But who were these 12 men that were being sent on this Galilean mission? Look at verse 2. The name of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and and Matthew the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So now we have the disciples of the mission. You'll notice in verse 1 that Jesus calls to himself 12 disciples. But then in verse 2, we see them referred to as the 12 apostles. So being a disciple, being referred to as a disciple, it's somebody who is learning. Somebody who is in the process of understanding. And, And these disciples, like we as disciples of Jesus, we're always in that process of learning. We're always going to sit at the feet of Jesus. There's never going to be a time when you and I stop being disciples. But this word apostle means sent one or messenger. 
So these disciples, Jesus was calling them to himself, and they were now going to be sent ones. They were going to be messengers of Christ, specifically for now, in this area of Galilee. But who were these sent ones uh, anyway, we see this full listing here of the 12 disciples or apostles, uh, and some of them are more well-known, some of them lesser known. It begins with Peter. He says, first, Peter. Peter, uh, we probably know him very well. Uh, he's also called Simon. Jesus later refers to him, calls him Cephas, which means rock. He's one of the more prominent disciples throughout the Gospels, uh, throughout even the pages of Acts. He wrote his own two epistles, first and second Peter. We know that his occupation was a fisherman. Back in Matthew 4, Jesus was walking along the shores of Galilee and he sees Peter with his brother mending their nets and he calls out to them uh, to follow him. The second disciple is Andrew, who was again Peter's brother. He was with Peter on the shores of Galilee when Jesus called them to follow after him. The third apostle mentioned is James, who was the, younger, or was the brother of John. He was martyred in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 12. Next is John. He's the author of the Gospel of John. He's the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the short little letters toward the end of your Bible. And then he's the author of the last book of the Bible with Revelation. He was the one that Jesus, remember when Jesus was on the cross and he looks out and John is standing with Mary and he says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He was part of the inner circle with Peter, James, and John. And they were very close with Jesus in his life and ministry. There's another disciple named James. He's the son of Alphaeus. This James ends up actually being very significant within the church of Jerusalem. Um, So later in the book of Acts, particular in the middle. Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean. uh, They're all pretty obscure. We don't know all that much about them. Of course, we know about Thomas. You remember Thomas, who is the, the one who doubted Jesus? You remember that he said, unless I see the hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, he sees Jesus. Jesus comes into the room. He sees Jesus, and he says, my Lord and my God, that great exclamation of Jesus' divinity. We spent a lot of time with Matthew, the tax collector, in recent weeks, seeing that Jesus had called him. Jesus walking along. He sees Matthew in his tax booth, and he says, you follow after me. Immediately, Matthew holds his big banquet in Jesus' honor at his house. He invites his tax collector friends, his sinner friends, and introduces them to his new master. And then finally, we see Judas, who was, of course, the one who would be filled with Satan and would betray Jesus. So I realized that was fast. That was quick. Bang, bang, boom. But I want you to think about these men. We have Peter, who is typically known as this hot-headed guy. He denies, eventually, knowing even who Jesus is. We know that Thomas, again, doubted Jesus. We have a tax collector who, again, the Jews would have hated. They hated the tax collectors because they were fellow Jews who had essentially turned their back on them to work for the Roman government and to tax them and to tax them more to fill their own pockets. So they hated the tax collectors. This one, Simon the Canaanian, he's also known as Simon the Zealot. And they, he was part of a, a, a real political activist kind of a, of a party. So you see Judas Iscariot at the end of the list who ends up being filled with Satan. So really, I mean, talk about diversity. This, this is a diverse group of 12 different people. 12 different men. 12 different personalities, different struggles, different opinions, yet all of them are being authorized by Jesus for this mission to other Jews. These weren't, these weren't guys of like incredible like high pedigree. 
These weren't, these weren't the guys with their master's degrees in theology. These were mostly blue-collar, rough fishermen. These weren't the kind of people you'd expect Jesus to gather. You'd expect Jesus to walk synagogue to synagogue and take the best and the brightest from all of the area and then send those guys on mission. But instead, he chooses 12 normal people. And this should, this should really encourage us as normal people. First, we, we're a lot like these disciples in that we're all different. Different backgrounds, different jobs, different ideas of how things should be done. Probably some different theology, different understandings on certain things. But we are all united under Christ. Second, Jesus takes these ordinary men and he empowers and authorizes and equips them for the mission that he's sending on. And so the point is not on their own power. The point is not on their own self-esteem. The point is not on their own ability. The point is on Jesus and his power and his strength and his authorization of these 12 normal people for the mission that he is sending them on to the fellow Jews. The same is with us in our own task to bring the gospel to the nations. If Jesus has called you to be his disciple, he has called you to go and to make disciples. He has tasked you with the responsibility to make disciples other disciples. We are all responsible in this great commission to take the gospel to others, to disciple. Like he has authorized these apostles for this mission, mission, he has authorized us for the great commission. So none of this is based upon your own ability. None of this is based on your authorization of yourself or your own self-authentication. This has everything to do with Jesus' authorization of you. So Jesus has spent time with these men. They have seen him work. He has prepared them for the work. He has equipped them and authorized them. But in verses 5 to 15, we come to the logistics or the instructions for the mission. And the first directive that Jesus gives these disciples is to whom they are to go to. He says this in verse 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather... Go to the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we have the instructions for the mission. And here we have the subjects of the mission. They weren't going on the great commission to the nations. This was the limited commission. They were to go on mission to their fellow Jews. The disciples were to go to their own people. They were to go to the people whom Jesus saw in the crowds and was moved to compassion over. They were to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, those who were without comfort and without guidance. But the apostles had a specific task to perform while they were going to the people of Israel. Look in 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says this, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, so give without pay. So they were to go to their fellow Jews proclaiming a message. The, the word for proclaim here is, is, is a word that means to, to let widely known, right? To, to herald. You kind of think of like the town crier within a town going and calling out a message from the king. This is what they were to do. They were to go and be a town crier within all of these different towns and all of these different villages, heralding a message that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They were to declare it. So they weren't to go into these towns whispering. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus has a king setting up his kingdom. No, he was to, they were to go and to proclaim this message. 
To tell of it boldly. Telling them that the Messiah King had come. Telling them of the works of Jesus among the people of Israel. But they were not only tasked with proclaiming a message. They were also tasked with the works of the kingdom. So the things that Jesus has been doing. He he has been the, the example for them. The one exemplifying exactly what it means to preach the gospel. Exactly what it means to heal the lame and the sick of all of their afflictions. To cast out demons and all the rest. And so now he was authorizing them to go and do the same exact things that we've seen him do all of these chapters. So those were the tasks of the mission. But look in verse 9 for the provisions of the mission. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So in three simple words, as far as provisions go, Jesus says, don't take any. (laughs) Don't don't take anything. And that doesn't really sit well with us. That doesn't sit well with Americans. It wouldn't really sit that well with them either. We like stuff. We like having, you know, a second pair of sneakers. We like to have a third pair of dress shoes. Oh, women. I'm just kidding. Um, but so anyway, it's a good thing that these were 12 men. Uh, anyway, but they were to go and not take anything with them. This was a particular mission. The disciples were to depend on the people of Israel that they were ministering to, to care for them, to house them, to feed them. They weren't to take any money. They weren't to take a money bag. They weren't to take extra clothes or shoes. They were to be solely provided for by God for or by, through the people of Israel. And so as they were going through these towns, this is exactly what happened. They'd go into a village. They'd go into a town. They would find somebody who was receptive to the message. They would stay within that home, and then that person would care for them. That person would house them. That person would feed them. That person would give them anything that they needed. So as they were going, what they would do is, as the text says, that they would find those who were worthy. And when he says those who are worthy, it's those who were receptive to the message. So they would go preaching within the villages and the towns. And if there were people that were receptive to this message, they would go into that house and stay with them. And as the text says, that he says, Jesus says to let your peace be upon that house. But if they are not receptive to the message, take your peace and continue on until you find somebody who is receptive to you and the message. So they were go, to go to the people of Israel. They were to preach to them, heal them to cast out demons do all of these things that we've seen Jesus do but they were to take no provisions with them instead they were to depend solely on God for all of their needs but I want you to look at this last verse and we'll spend some time here but this last verse in our passage this morning it's startling truly I say to you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In other words, that town that has refused. That town who was not worthy. We have this idea that Jesus would never say anything harsh or judgmental. That he just, the word love, that's the only word he, he ever said. Or the, and then, but it's our interpretation of what the word love is. But this is a hard saying. What, what he's saying is, is almost unfathomable. Do you remember the story surrounding Sodom and Gomorrah? Way back in the beginning of the Bible. Thousands of years before Christ came to earth, the Lord was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness. Genesis 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So in light of that, God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
God's chosen man, Abraham, he attempts to intercede on behalf of the people of these cities so that they wouldn't be destroyed. So Abraham's heart goes out after Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes out to them, and so he calls out to God, God, please do not destroy these cities. And so God says, okay, if we find 50 righteous men within those cities, then I will not destroy. I will relent, and I will not destroy those cities. So after some haggling, it gets all the way down to 10. If you can find 10 righteous people within Sodom and Gomorrah, God would spare them. Just, just 10 people out of the thousands that would have been there. 10 righteous people, and God would have spared the city. And if you remember the story, you know that not even 10 righteous people were found in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God rained down sulfur and fire, and he consumed the cities because of their great wickedness. In the little book of Jude, in the back of the New Testament, right before Revelation, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So they were consumed with fire on earth, and they are in eternal fire right now. And Jesus says that on the day of judgment, it is going to be more bearable... For the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than for the town that rejects the disciples and the message of the kingdom. The people in those cities were burned with fire and Jews said that they're in eternal fire right now. And Jesus says that it's going to be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the towns that refuse the disciples and their message as they go about this mission. Does that make sense to you? For simply refusing these disciples, for simply refusing their message, it's going to be worse for them than, it, than it's going to be for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. They were known for their sexual morality and known for their unnatural desire. One commentator said this, increased understanding of God's revelation means increased responsibility. The more you know about the work of God and the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus, the more you are responsible for what you have heard. We see in this, like we have so many times in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus has such authority that he even knows what the day of judgment is going to be like. Thousands of years from when he was on earth. He has such authority and such knowledge and such power that he even knows what that day is going to be like. He knows that it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these cities or towns that refuse the disciples and their message. Even though all of this judgment has been shown to these cities, those who heard the message of the kingdom of Jesus and refuse it will receive an even worse judgment. To reject the disciples and this message was to reject Christ. And to reject Christ is to receive an immeasurable punishment. Charles Spurgeon said, Here, our ever-blessed king sends forth his royal ambassadors under orders to summon the Jewish nation to their sovereign Lord, and he supports them in their errand by a tremendous threat of doom to those who will not receive it or listen to their words. And so, my friend, if you do not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, you also have a tremendous threat of doom over your head. This Jesus, who we've talked about so much this morning, lived a perfect life, on behalf of those who couldn't. Died a perfect death on behalf of those who couldn't. He was raised from the dead for those who couldn't. And believing in this message frees you from the threat of doom that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns that refused Christ are going through right now. So wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Many are on it, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. Narrow is the gate that is Jesus Christ himself.
But to my Christian friends, these disciples, they were being sent on a particular mission for a specific task of bringing this news of the kingdom to their fellow Jews. But what they did on this mission trip would be foreshadowing the work that they were to do and that you and I are to do with our lives. This would be training for the Great Commission. This part of the mission that you and I are to be steeped in now, going to the lost world and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ by His authority as His messengers and in His way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You again for what You have graciously done in our lives. We thank You that You have not spared Your Son, that You sacrificed Him and You poured Your wrath upon Him. Jesus, we thank You for bearing this for those who couldn't. We pray, Lord, if there are any here who don't know you and who need a Savior desperately, we pray that you'll make yourself known to them. It is horrific to think about the punishment that Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities and towns and those people who have refused Christ are going through. We pray, Lord, that you will call as Lord of the harvest, many laborers into the fields, reaping as they go about the Great Commission. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.